Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of our worship here today, just being able to gather and fellowship with each other and acknowledge our love for you and our need of you. And Lord, this morning again, um, we come a bit distracted, pressed, family needs, financial needs, perhaps medical needs, all kinds of issues. But we're asking for your grace and mercy that you would show us Jesus, the one we need the most, the one who completes us, the one without whom we are really hopeless. And so I just ask, even in our time in your word today, that your spirit would open our minds and our hearts to this amazing story of his life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do have uh, an exciting series we're in here in the book of Mark, and just trying to capture how intentional Jesus was on his journey to the cross. And our title is, Which Jesus Do You Want? I hope you'll be able to answer what that question is about when we get to the end of our time. But uh, there was an assumption by the people in the time of Jesus' life that maybe he could be King Jesus, the king of power and the king of politics, and the king to bring deliverance. And there was this whole confusion about this suffering servant. What? Who wants a suffering servant? What's that about? And so you have to understand a little bit what it was like for first century uh, Israelites. And it's really hard for us, frankly. That is quite a stretch. You have to realize we've never known as a country defeat in a sense that it would lead to occupation and being oppressed by other people. Those Israelites... They basically were under the Assyrians, under the Babylonians, they fought with the Philistines, under the Medes and Persians, and finally, and during the life of Jesus, under the Romans, who were so oppressive, took their dignity, took their wealth, took their power, uh, basically made life very miserable for them. (laughs) And you think about our situation, we have what we call these uh, first world problems, right? If you check those videos, you know, like, we can't get quite the right softness in a pillow these days. I mean, isn't it really a tough thing that we have to face? And, you know, we have every year we have to decide between all of our different medical plans, and it's such a hassle to have to decide which insurance you should have and which options you should go for. And all these things that come to us in mind when you want to come redecorating your house, so many choices. It'll kill you how many choices in countertops we have to go through, right? And the Israelites were just trying to survive and just having some hope that they could be returned to their glory days a thousand years before when King David had reigned. And so they were, those few that were still hoping, they were hoping for a champion. They were hoping for a Samson to come in. They were hoping for King David to come back, overthrow the Romans, give them their dignity and their glory days again. That's what they hoped. And, you know, expectations are a big part of life. Uh, We talk about it, uh, you know, with the whole realm of politics. And in order to get elected, you need to say certain things, make certain promises, And it turns out those are often hard to keep. And so what happens is we have a growing skepticism in our country so that, you know, when you look at what we think of our Congress, for example, the people that get to decide what happens to our money, this tax business that we do, that we have about, you know, what is it, a 15% or so uh, positive feeling towards what they do. And so we've had this disillusionment with what we expected politicians as public servants would be. (laughs) That's not the main point of our sermon, but we'll get there. But what about in the area of marriage? This is something that when we do premarital counseling, we're dealing with all the time. People, you know, watch romantic movies and hear songs, and they have it in their mind, man, when I get married, it's going to be all this. And one of the jobs we have as pastors is not to talk them out of that, exactly, 
but to help them realize that their expectations have got to be adapted to reality or they're going to have some big problems. And so that's part of the journey we have in counseling. Well, now here in our 21st century, what do people expect spiritually? What is it people are looking for? And for a lot of people, they're looking for comfort, encouragement, something that will make their life better. And in actual fact, there's people who will market spirituality to them. Oh, you want a God that looks like this? We can do that. Take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Mix it all up. Whatever spirituality you want, you can have today. So that you can be content and have this God meet your expectations. Well, that was kind of what Israel, uh, that is to say, they had an expectation that was radically different than what they were seeing in Christ. And so that was their tension. What was Jesus doing up to these days? We started with the story of the baptism when the Trinity showed up. God the Father spoke his love to the Son. The Holy Spirit was there. The creator and sustainer of the universe, the Word himself, was there at the baptism. Then we looked at a few of the miracles. The paralytic, who Jesus not only healed physically, take up your mat and walk, but healed spiritually. Your sins are forgiven, he said, which was shocking. Then we saw him do the miracle with the seas and quiet the storm and have power over creation. And then there was this teaching. Jesus would teach and people were amazed. They were spellbound. And it was, his wisdom was incredible. His ability to communicate was something they'd never experienced. But the message, hope for everyone, not just the spiritual elite, not just their leaders and the priests and the rabbis and the chief priests, but for the broken and the downtrodden, he offered this message of hope, and they loved his message and were amazed at it. Well, so Jesus has that public ministry going, and the more miracles he does, the bigger his following gets. Now he's on his way to Jerusalem, and just before this story, he starts telling his disciples very plainly, hey guys, listen up. I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to spit on me and beat me and kill me. But don't worry about it. I'm going to raise from the dead in three days. And the disciples were shaking their head. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're the king. We understand that. You're the Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one from God. We want to be right with you, but we want to be a conquering king. We don't want a servant king. And so Peter actually took Jesus aside the first time he was expressing clearly that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He said, don't talk like that, Jesus. That's wrong. And we get the strongest rebuke I've ever known of Jesus towards one of his followers. Get behind me, Satan. Unbelievably strong rebuke. You're trying to talk me out of going the way of suffering. You don't get it, Peter. So Peter is, of course, confused. And the rest of the disciples were getting fearful. They'd had so much trouble in Jerusalem. They didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. Jesus said, we are on our way to Jerusalem. Finally, Thomas says, according to the book of Mark, I mean, uh, John, let's go to Jerusalem and die with him. That's all they thought was going to happen. This man is in trouble, and he's going to take us with trouble, but he is the Messiah. We can't turn back. Let's go with him. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but let's go to Jerusalem and die. And so you have to think, the mindset of the disciples that day when we come into Palm Sunday It was a heavy day. They were confused. They were convinced who Jesus was, but they didn't get the plan. They did not. And so that's all important background. Just before Jesus had gone to Jerusalem, another major miracle happened, and that was he raised Lazarus from the dead. And I mention that because that caused quite a stir, actually. 
uh, got people really worked up. All kinds of people wanted to go out, and Lazarus didn't live very far from Jerusalem. So people would go out and see him and talk to him and say, I saw Lazarus. It's true. It is true. He's alive. And he would keep telling that story. And so the crowds are getting really worked up, so much so that by the time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the whole city is in an uproar. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's hearing these stories. And that was what was going on on Palm Sunday. Um, now, what, did that, what effect did that have on the Jewish leaders? They were ticked off. They didn't like Jesus having that kind of crowd following. And so they determined, we have got to figure out a way to kill Jesus. In fact, while we're at it, now we need to kill Lazarus, too, because it's really inconvenient that Jesus raised him from the dead. So they were literally talking about trying to undo the miracle Jesus had done and kill Lazarus. Well, we get to our passage today, the triumphal entry. What a ride, I'll call this. We all know how important leaders' cars are, right? I mean, the, the Pope has his Popemobile, and it's this fantastically big thing he can stand up on and have all the plexiglass around him and go through cities. Our president has Air Force One, which is unbelievable, that airplane and what equipment is on it and how nicely it is appointed. But, of course, he takes these big eight-ton limos with him when he goes to cities, too, you know. And those limos are totally, have all this protective devices in them, even self-contained air supply and all that. And you might have heard this last week. We had a little bit of an embarrassment happen. He had two limos that they flew over to Jerusalem for his Holy Week tour. And one of the guys was in charge of going out and fueling this thing up, put the wrong fuel in the limo. So it broke down. So he put gasoline in a diesel-powered limo. So the next thing you see a picture in Israel of the President of the United States, the most powerful nation in the country, and there's his eight-ton limo on the back of a tow truck. And uh, so much for the plans of mice and men. And I wonder what that guy's life's like who fueled up that limo that day. But anyway, we know that you know, how a leader arrives is a really important thing. We get a big indicator of whether we should respect this person or not. What kind of parade do they get? And the Romans knew this, so the Romans would have these incredible big parades, and they would have the people they'd capture going in front of them in chains, and they'd have their uh, generals coming in, and they'd be in these incredibly fancy and ornate chariots, and there would be music and trumpets blaring. It was all to show how important this person was. So now the king of glory, the creator of the universe, the one who's pushing back the curse, is riding into the city, Jerusalem, to be anointed king. And what's his ride? A donkey. Let's look at that. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a coat tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them, The Lord needs it. And it will, and, uh, it will send it back here shortly. They went and found a coat outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? Don't you wish you knew who these two guys were? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. So, you know, this is, we have, we have sort of minutiae detail in the midst of the most glorious historic things happening. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The people are all worked up, and he sends a couple of the disciples to go get this young colt this donkey, this uh, immature donkey even at that, that no one had ever ridden. And the disciples, of course, they're bewildered, remember? They're concerned about going to Jerusalem. But this is a ministry into their lives. 
Because Jesus wanted them to know he was totally in control of everything that was going to happen in Jerusalem. He was not being passive and things were happening to him. He was in charge. And so much so that he said to the disciples, you're going to find a donkey right there. And when people are going to ask you, by the way, why are you taking our donkey? You're going to tell them this answer and they're going to let you bring the donkey. That's the way it's going to work. And so these guys who are discouraged but still committed to obedience... They go and they find a donkey, just like Jesus said. People say the words, just like they said. So guess what? They try his line. Well, you know, the Lord needs it, but we'll bring it back. And they say, yeah, take it with you. Go for it, man. And so you have to understand, Jesus is just like this. So much on his mind, so much on his heart, so much he's preparing to suffer himself. And he's thinking of the disciples. He's thinking, how can I arrange this so that they get fresh encouragement today? How can I show them that I'm in charge? How can I minister to them while they're still serving me? And that's how Jesus is with us, too. He is totally about using us for his service and his glory, but he's always working in us and encouraging us and ministering to us while he's also willing to use us. And so that's the kind of thing that was going on with these disciples. Now, um, this was no accident that he chose this donkey because even though he was acknowledging they were right. He was the king of the Jews. He also was making his point, but I'm this servant king. I come in humility. I don't come with a big sword and a war horse and armed chariots. I come riding on a donkey, humbly dressed, humbly serving. But there's another key to this, and it's found in Zechariah 9.9, where there's a, a prophecy about this whole thing happening. That verse says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was over 500 years before this event happened that Zechariah said exactly what Jesus would do the day he came into Jerusalem. Now, you might think, well, Jesus just sort of read the book, and then he was kind of trying to fill out all these things. But I challenge you to try to write something down that somebody's going to do 500 years from now. I mean, do you realize there are over 300 specific prophecies about the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ, and he fulfilled every one of them to a T. So he already has demonstrated his power through his miracles and his control over nature, and he's taught this amazing truth of the wisdom of God. But also, he was the fulfillment of, really, going all the way back to the life of Abraham, the fulfillment of all the promises and all the prophecies of God. Because you know what? He wanted to help you and me believe. He wanted to give us everything we could need to say yes to him as our king. And he was trying to help those Israelites then, too. And so that's all the goodness of God to give us this evidence and to help us. And it is an amazing thing that these prophecies came true. Well, now the parade starts. They have the donkey. What happens? Verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. So remember, this isn't a small crowd. This is a big crowd. The whole city is stirred up, and people are coming. And who's coming? It's Jesus. It's the... Prophet from Nazareth. Oh, might he be the king? Yes, he's the king, some declared. Others wondered, others questioned. Many came, as they do, just because of the excitement. 
But here comes Jesus on this donkey. And there's two things that are mentioned here specifically that they are using. They're cloaks. Now, how easy was it for them to get those cloaks to the dry cleaners after this event? I mean, you know, they didn't have wardrobes. They didn't have extra cloaks. They mostly just had a couple of garments, one outer garment. So when they took their cloaks off and put them in the dirt road and let the crowd walk over them and the donkey ride over them, it was a really big sacrifice. But it was an appropriate thing to do to acknowledge that this is our king. It's like the red carpet treatment. We want to show our allegiance to him. We want to show our understanding that he's our king. So they took their cloaks off, and that was an appropriate thing to do because Jesus is king, absolutely without limit. And so in that part, they were right. They took their cloaks off. And others, just as our kids, were putting palm branches down. They were cutting the palm branches, and I don't doubt they were waving them, but then they were lining the road with them. And that was also significant. What they did with those palm branches was it was a sign of their hope for victory. Sometimes they would do it after a big victory to celebrate the victory, but often when someone was marching out, they'd want to show this one is marching to victory. And so those palm branches were showing we're going to have victory because our king is here. And they had that hope and that expectation. And it was appropriate because Jesus was going to win the victory. It was just incredibly different than what they expected. Now I ask you, what do you think the Romans were thinking when they heard that this thing was going on? Oh, Jesus is coming and there's all kinds of noise about him. We've had reports back and some of us are actually interested in some of the things we hear. It can't even seem possible. But at the same time, he's weak. We've seen his followers. He's weak. He's not organizing rebellion. They're not arming. We've got our spies out. We know we're not too worried about that guy because he's weak. He's coming with humility. And the Romans despised humility. It was totally something against their culture and against their values. So what did the Jewish leaders think? Well, we know what they thought, because Luke tells us, while this is happening and people are crying out that he's the king and he's the Messiah, and they're saying all these things, they come and tell Jesus, Jesus, you have to tell your disciples to shut up. It's so wrong for them to say those things. That's what the Jewish leaders were thinking. Even on that day, even when they have Lazarus alive, They've had all these miracles, all the teaching. Jesus has been in the temple time after time, and they still don't get it. So they think it's wrong for Jesus to describe himself as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so what do they say? They say, Jesus, you've got to stop your disciples. And Jesus says, you know what? If I stop my disciples, nature itself is going to cry out about who I am. There is no being quiet about the fact that I'm the king of the universe. That's the way it is. And so he did not respond and say, oh, I'm sorry, so sorry to offend you. That was not his answer. So he was coming with humility. But his humility did not mean that he thought, anybody that's really religious, I've got to make sure I please them and appease them. That was like the last thing on Jesus' agenda, wasn't it? I mean, so often the religious leaders were angry at him because they had one agenda about how they wanted to control people and have things over people and basically take advantage of people. And Jesus had a totally different agenda for how he was going to minister to people and what he was going to do for people. And so he was regularly willing to confront them. And so John 12 tells us that they were actually planning to kill Jesus when this parade is going on. Others are worshiping, and they're saying Hosanna, and they're laying their cloaks down for their king, and they're putting their palm branches down in hope of the great victory he's going to win for them. And the Jewish leaders, the leaders of God's nation, 
the ones who had the word of God for all that time, the religious leaders. And I say all this to make you aware, sometimes we're like them. Sometimes we take our religiosity and our place even in our church or in the way we think things work. And sometimes we're willing to stand even against the very thing God is doing. And it's a scary thing. It's easy to condemn them. It's a lot more frightening when we realize that sometimes we are just like them. So when we come into church this morning, when we sang those songs we sang with Brad and the team, it is so appropriate that we worship Jesus as king. But I will say, sometimes we still miss what he's about and who he is. And sometimes we still want certain things from God that are different than what he's doing and what his agenda is for us. And we need to, in essence, figure that out, to be listeners. Well, verse 9 through 11. This is great. Those who went ahead and those who followed. So the whole crowd coming along with Jesus in the center on his donkey, they were shouting. This was a really praised uh, event. You would have been excited if you were there. It was enthusiastic. And they shouted this, Hosanna! You know what Hosanna means? Save us. These people who had been under oppression for so many hundreds of years, they'd been slaves in Egypt. Their whole history was kind of a hassle, to be honest. They had a lot more bad days than good days, and these were some of the worst under the Romans. And so here comes their king on a donkey, and they're crying out, Save us! Save us! But the question is, save us from what? They wanted saved from the Romans, right? Their biggest problem, they thought, was the Romans. What do you think your biggest problem is today? What do you want Jesus to save you from? Difficulties, pressures, family problems, financial problems, health problems. What is our list of things that we want saved from? They wanted saved from the Romans. You know what? Jesus was coming to save them. But he wasn't going for the small-time issue of just taking care of the Romans. He wasn't going to mess around with that. He was coming to push back the curse in every aspect of everything that had gone wrong since sin entered the world. Amen. He was going to push back death. He was going to push back all the suffering, all the divisiveness that had come into the human race, push back all the enmity between people and people and people and God. He was going for the heart. He was going for, you might say, the, the big enchilada. He wasn't messing around with, oh, you guys want to get rid of the Romans. That's not even your main problem. You need saved from you. You need saved from your prideful heart. You need saved from the fact that you're selfish. And the more you try to please yourself, the less you get there. That's what I want to save you from. But what they wanted saved from was their inconveniences and their indignities. And they wanted a better life. And Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And they said, oh, what do you mean? Serve? Serve others? Die to self? No, Jesus, that's not what we mean about abundant life. What we mean is we want comfort and security and we want prestige. And even as a church gang, what do we want for Jesus to do for us? Do we want a church where we can be proud and do we want to feel good about ourselves and do we want to be even more comfortable and make sure our needs are always going to be met? And he says, you know what, I'm calling for you to die to your ambitions and to yourself. I'm going to save you from those things that you might truly live. As an example, follow me. I wash my disciples' feet. 
I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And what's going to be the power of this thing? They were looking for a king to grab a sword, build an army, push off the Romans. And Jesus said, my weapon is love. And no one has more powerful love, no one has more consistent love than I'm going to show you in a few days, so just hang around. Jesus said, I'm going to show you love. And that's why we come to Good Friday, which, again, Jesus was totally in control of, totally responsible for what happened there. He used the Roman system, and he used the Jewish leaders, but he came to die for you and for me. He was planning on it, he was committed to it, and nobody could talk him out of it because of his love for us and his love for them. And so he came in, and there's all those mixed things going on. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I mean, we even know the travelogue of what Jesus was doing sometime. This is so historically real and rich. He got there late. He looked at the temple, and he said, that's too, what I need to do, I'm going to go home and sleep on it. Come back tomorrow and tackle this. And he did come back the next day, and he went in and he swept the temple out. There were, um, someone estimated that maybe as many as 250,000 lambs a year would be slaughtered in the temple. You figure that out. That's a lot of lambs. A lot of lambs. And all this business going on, and people trading money and selling doves and selling lambs, and, and a lot of people, as we do, had figured out how to make a business out of this and make money and take advantage of people. And the temple itself was set up in this hierarchical system. There was only one outer court where the Gentiles could come, people like you and me. And the Jews could go into an inner court for worship, and of course, only the high priest, only once a year, could go into the Holy of Holies, which was the presence of God himself and his glory. And when Jesus came and swept that temple clean, it's interesting, let's just look for a second at those verses, they're beyond our text this morning, but really telling here. Um, Let's see, where do those verses go? Uh, He basically says about that... um, after the, there's a withered tree story here, and then, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm missing my verses here. It's, okay, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, um, basically, is it not written, my house will be called a house for prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Of course, that really pleased the chief priests. They got even more stirred up about it. But what was he saying? You know, basically, this place is not going to be a place of merchandise. It's going to be a place of prayer. And it's not just prayer for you Jews. It's a place for prayer for all the nations. And so Jesus knew on this day, Monday, what he was going to do on Thursday and Friday and what was going to happen to that Baal in that temple. He knew it was going to be opened up so that you and I could go right to the presence of God to pray. It's going to be a place of prayer for all the nations. That's the stuff he was about that everybody else was clueless about. He had us in mind. And he had us having access to God in mind. And so I guess the big question is, How do people respond? How do we respond to this Jesus? What do we want from him, as I've already asked? The crowds were willing to follow and celebrate for a short time. And when they thought it was going to lead to what they wanted, I'm telling you, I think a lot of us come to church that way. 
thinking, as long as God gives me what I want, and as long as he makes my life better, I'll do that. But if it gets costly and difficult and hard, count me out. Because a lot of those people who were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, they were the same ones that were saying, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus within days. And so just being someone who hangs around the excitement of Christianity and church and religion is not the same thing as someone that knows who Jesus is and believes in him, even in their states of confusion. Well, then, of course, we have some Jewish leaders who were trying to kill Jesus and didn't want to have their positions of power taken away. And it's interesting to me, there are so many things that press in on, especially, I think, our younger generation. You know, we have uh, so many people that are saying, you know, you really can't believe all the stuff that's in the Bible. You really can't believe that what they say about Jesus is totally true. He was probably a good teacher. He was probably a good moral man. But you've got to kind of shape and bake your own religion for you to really be satisfied. And so it takes extra courage to say, no, actually, I believe Jesus and what he has said and who he is and what God has revealed. And I will submit my life to him as my king. The disciples did not understand everything. That's an understatement. This encourages me. I don't know where you are, but I'm telling you, there's so many times I don't know everything God's up to. And I can't see what's he trying to do in my life and what's he doing in our church and what are his intentions. Sometimes I just don't get it. But I keep coming back to this. I get him. He is the Messiah, the sent one, the anointed one from God. He proved it in his life. He proved it in his death. And he really proved it in the resurrection we're going to celebrate next Sunday. And so the question to you this morning is, what is your response to this king? Maybe not the king you want, but the king that Jesus is, the humble servant who calls you to lay down your life and follow him in humility and in service and to love others as you love yourself and to love him, as we said last week, with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? Are you those that just look and are a little enamored and then turn and go your own way? Or are you like the disciples, confused, tired, weary, fearful, but clinging to Jesus because you know he's our only hope. He is it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, Master of the universe. And Lord, I pray that today, not just theoretically or as we're remembering an old story, but in a fresh way, you would draw our hearts to this Jesus, the living Jesus, seated right now in heavenly places. And Father, draw us to respond in a way that honors you and allows us to know him and in essence serve him as our king and our Lord. We ask for the grace to do that, Lord. We cannot do it in our own strength. But thanks be to God, we don't need to because the Holy Spirit's available because of the mercy of God and the grace given us to help us. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.